If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn it to Hebrews chapter 9. We are in an extended passage on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And far from being some esoteric subject that's just for scholars to think about, this letter was actually written to a wide variety of people, all of whom were facing pressure in life, the normal kind that everybody faces and then the particular kind that Christians face. And so this isn't just something to sort of put on a theology shelf. It actually applies to our life. The, the, the writer is trying to put bedrock under our feet uh, so that we have hope in the midst of anything. So it's fitting that we're in this section of Scripture leading into Holy Week because one of the key reasons that we call this Friday Good Friday is because of the priestly intercession that Jesus did in his life and death, particularly his death on the cross. That is, the cross is the instrument by which Jesus intercedes between God and man and makes it possible for us to be reconciled. So that's what makes it good. And so I'm glad that we're going in through this, this lengthy passage of his priesthood, going into Holy Week. Hebrews 9 describes the priestly act of Jesus. We're going to walk through a lot of it in this chapter. We won't read everything in it, but we will start by just reading three verses, which I think get at the, the heart of what Jesus did for us. So let me read Hebrews 9, verses 12, 22, and 26, and then we'll pray. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for a fresh encounter with you this morning. And we will talk about things that are familiar to many people. And we go into Holy Week with a sense of routine, maybe, that this happens every year. But we need the sense of it. We need the, the importance of it. We need to see the, the love of it, the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And I ask that you would fill our hearts with a new love for him and gratitude and surety that you are for us in all things. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, R.C. Sproul spoke at a conference on the theme of the curse motif in the atonement. That's a good word. That's a good title for pastors. It was a pastor's conference. You like words like motif. It was one of two times that I've heard R.C. preach in person, and I've listened to this message several times since then. In, in the message, he mentioned a time when he was invited to speak at a gathering 
to tell them about the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. And so he took some time to walk through the Day of Atonement and all of the animal sacrifices that happened on that day to atone for sin. And then he related that to the cross of Christ and how in the crucifixion his blood was shed in our place for our sin. As he was speaking, a man in the crowd shouted out, that's primitive and obscene. Which would sit you back if you're the preacher. <laughs> and so he had to like take a moment to collect his thoughts after that. And after thinking about it, here's how he responded to that, that man. He said, you're right. I love the words that you have chosen to describe this dynamic what could be more primitive than killing animals and sticking their blood over the throne of God or taking a human being and pouring out his blood as a human sacrifice? You're right. That is primitive. Then he said this to us who are listening to his message. You know, one of the things I love about the gospel is that it wasn't written for an elite group of scholars who had to have their PhD in theology in order to understand it. But the drama of redemption is communicated in terms so simple, so crass, so primitive, that even a child can understand it. I bring up that story because that man is not alone in taking offense at the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not uncommon for people to have a negative reaction to the idea that Jesus was killed in order for God to forgive our sins. That sounds primitive and obscene, but if anything is so clear from the teaching of Hebrews 9 that even a child can understand it, it's this reality that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. And that it is by means of Jesus' own blood that he secured an eternal redemption. The song that we teach to our children, and we're going to sing it later today, what many of us know, puts it simply, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9 takes us face-to-face -face with that reality. And that's not because the writer had a fascination with bloody sacrifice. It's because his goal is to strengthen weary and faint-hearted Christians with the awareness of all that Christ has done for us. What it cost him. The love of it. And we need to know that love if we're going to persevere in the faith. So we're going to look at this sacrifice this morning and the forgiveness it brings to those who put their faith in Christ. We'll start by seeing what is said here about forgiveness of sin under the first covenant. This is in verses 1 to 7, so let's read that. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go in regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So what we have here is a description of the central place of worship for the people of Israel after God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, a tent or a tabernacle was made according to the instructions that God gave Moses on the mountain. And this tabernacle had a room within a room within a courtyard. And there were objects in these rooms that they had various meetings. The writer, the writer says, we can't speak in detail right now about those things because he has something else that's his main focus. And what his main focus is, is what happened in that room within the room within the courtyard. Because that's the heart of why the temple was there. Why the tabernacle was there. The outer room, or the first section, was called the holy place. This was the chamber that only the priests could enter. It's where they ate the bread of the presence. It's where they kept the lamps burning and did other things that were worship rituals on behalf of the people. Only the priests could go into that section. But then you had the inner room. You had the second section. It's behind the second veil. And that's called the most holy place. And in this chamber is where the golden box is that holds the tablets of the covenant, the obligations for man to be in right relationship with God, part of the covenant that was made that we talked about in chapter 8. Those tablets are in that box. And then this box is covered with a golden lid that's called the mercy seat. And that's the symbolic footstool of God's throne. So to go into this inner room, this most holy place, it's called most holy because that's where the very presence of God on earth was located. You didn't just wander into this room. This was highly restricted area. In fact, only the high priest could go into that room. And only once a year. And here's the most essential part. He can only enter by taking blood. Not without taking blood, we read. Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That means the only time that any human could go into God's presence was with a sacrifice that atones for sin, that deals with the offense that our breaking of our obligations to God, our Creator, made. 
So it's a very restricted place. You just can't walk in and see God. There has to be purification. There has to be an offering for sin. And I saw a living example of this when I was in Ethiopia. We were near an Ethiopian Orthodox church, which we went to visit. And uh, there were seats all set out all around it outside. And all the doors were locked. And there were people praying up against the walls of the building. And so I asked somebody, what's going on here? And they said, well, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, only the priests are allowed inside the building. It's treated like the most holy place. It actually has a replica of the ark inside. And everybody else who is not a priest cannot go in. So they try to get as close as they can to the most holy place, and they're praying up against the doors and up against the walls. And I thought, that's so sad because Jesus came to open the doors. He came to open the way to the presence of God, not shut us out. But I thought, that's what that must have been like to be in Israel back in those days. Only the priests can go in there. But the rest of us have to watch from a distance. That's what Jesus came to fix. Let's just continue, though. The one day that the priest could go into the most holy place was called the Day of Atonement. That's described in Leviticus 16. That's when the high priest brought in the blood of a slain animal. The blood represented the death of that animal. The death that was for the priest and for the unintentional sins of the people. That's a recognition that all people, even those that God calls to be near to Him, have sins in their lives. Disobedience to the terms of the covenant between God and man, and that death is the appropriate penalty for those sins. He brings in the evidence that a death has occurred so that my sin is forgiven so that I can be in your presence, O God. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He didn't make that up. He got that from the Old Testament sacrificial system. We might balk at this idea that our sins deserve a death as the appropriate punishment. But perhaps that because we measure our offenses against our own standard. I've heard it said that Pigs do not smell bad to one another because they're all in the same mess. It takes someone who is not in the same mess to recognize the stench, to recognize the offense of our sins. God recognizes the offense of our sins very clearly because God is pure. God is holy. And if He sets a value on our sins and what it takes for those to be forgiven, then that is accurate. And that value is death. Notice also that they are called unintentional sins in this chapter. That on the Day of the Atonement, he brings the sacrifice or the blood in for the unintentional sins. We might wonder if there is such a thing as an unintentional sin. I mean, aren't you innocent if you do something wrong, but you didn't mean to do it. <laughs> well, try that on a police officer sometime 
who tickets you for speeding. If you say, but I didn't know the speed limit, or I didn't know I was going that fast, you're still going to get the ticket because a law has been broken. God has speed limits. The Ten Commandments written on tablets and placed in the ark in the most holy place. And although intentionally breaking those commands makes the sin worse, it is still sin even if it was unintentional. Even unintentional sins earn the penalty of death. That's what the blood was for. To atone for those sins too. So on the Day of Atonement, the priest, being a sinner himself, is not allowed into God's presence without evidence that a death has occurred in payment of his sins and that of the people. He cannot go in without taking blood. Blood is needed. Death is needed to forgive sin and maintain right relations with God. However, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 8, animal sacrifices were never the full solution to that problem. We see that in verses 8 through 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So here's what we know about all those animal sacrifices. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We know instinctively that an animal can't really take away human sins that we're still guilty of whatever we did. And as soon as one sacrifice is completed, another one is needed because we keep on sinning under this old system. Even the high priest, by the end of the day, he goes home and he's got more sins that need to be atoned for. So the conscience under that old system never gets a rest. There's always the awareness of guilt that needs a sacrifice. To use an illustration, the sacrifices under the Old Covenant were like paying for something with a credit card rather than with cash. You get something right away, in this case, atonement, forgiveness, but you know you still owe the money. You know there eventually needs to be a real cash payment and that you don't really own this yet. That might be one way of looking at forgiveness under the Old Covenant. There was something else out there that could do the job, that this was just a credit card payment for. The animal sacrifices, they weren't enough. It didn't clear the conscience. You knew there was something that needed to be done, something that deals with the fundamental sinfulness of our human nature and grants us a forgiveness that's total and permanent. So he says the way into the holy places isn't opened yet as long as this first section is standing. He's talking about that whole system. As long as that old sanctuary is what you're working under, the way into God's presence isn't opened yet. There's got to be what he calls a time of reformation, an institutional change 
in how a person is made right with God. And that's where the new covenant comes in. The one that Jesus, our high priest, mediates. So let's see what it said about forgiveness of sin under the new covenant. And this is in verses 11 to 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So just like under the first covenant, there's a high priest. But this time the high priest is Christ. And he enters not into an earthly room within a room, but he enters into the more perfect tent that is not of this creation, that is, as verse 24 will say, into heaven itself, now to appear before God on our behalf. And here's the important thing not to miss. Christ, our high priest, also entered God's presence, not without taking blood. But this time it wasn't the blood of goats and bulls. It was his own blood. He died bearing the wages of our sin, not, not some animal. And as we'll come back to later, his death really does purify our conscience from dead works, from sin, because it secures an eternal redemption. We'll come back to that, but before we do, Notice the connection that's made between the new covenant that Jesus mediates and the old one mediated by the priests. In both covenants, sin and transgression of people requires a death. It requires the shedding of blood. Under the old covenant, it was goats and calves. Under the new covenant, it is Jesus. But there has always needed to be a death for the payment of our sin. The only difference is that the blood of animals didn't purify the conscience, but the blood of Jesus does. But there always has to be a death to atone for sin. And just so we don't miss this point, verses 16 to 22 are an extended defense of that fact. We aren't going to read that passage, but I'll just describe it. The author goes on to make an argument that even a will and testament which is a form of a covenant, even that doesn't take effect until there's a death. Nobody gets the benefits of the will until someone dies, the one who wrote the will. That's his first argument. Second argument is just to point out just how much shedding of blood was part of the ancient priestly rituals. The word blood is mentioned six times 
in those verses regarding the Old Covenant. Verse 22 summarizes it by saying, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you have to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite to appreciate how obvious that fact was to everybody in the community. Atonement was a bloody business. To be a priest was like being a butcher. I mean, literally, that's what they were doing. Day after day, people would bring in goats and lambs and sometimes bulls to the tent, and day after day, they would be slaughtered. The, the sight of blood, the smell of it, the stains on everything, the sprinkling of it, the throwing it on an altar. There's just blood everywhere. Every day is a reminder of death. Death, because that's what sin against God deserves. And it's no different with the sacrifice that Christ made and the blood that he shed. Some years ago, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, was released. It was an attempt to portray what it was actually like for Jesus to suffer and die for our sins. Everything in the movie was made to be as accurate as possible to the period. Even the dialogue was in Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic with English subtitles. And I was invited to the pre-release screening that was just for the clergy because they wanted to interview pastors on the way out of the theater to see what you thought about this. Well, the one thing that sticks in my mind from the movie, and I've never watched it again because of this, but what sticks in my mind was the savagery inflicted on Jesus, particularly in the scourging. The scene just went on for minutes as his body was flayed with the many striped scourge with pieces of bone and metal embedded in it, and it was ripping apart his skin and exposing organs and that just went on and on and on. It was bloody. And it was a reminder of the truth of Isaiah 52, 14 about Jesus, that his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. That is what Jesus looked like as he was nailed to the cross. A man covered in his own blood offering himself as a sacrifice for our sin. It's a graphic reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You could say that it was primitive and obscene. Because it was. On my way out of the theater, someone put a microphone in my face asked me what I thought. The first thing that came to my mind that I told the reporter was, God must really hate sin in order for that to be the punishment for it. So I want to reflect on that. The concept of a bloody sacrifice to pay for sins, that's not popular in our day, um, not even in the broader church. 
Like the man who told R.C. Sproul that it was primitive and obscene, it sounds too gory, it sounds too harsh. A God of love would never do that, especially not to his beloved son. Surely there has to be another meaning for the suffering of, and death of Christ. Anything but payment for our sins. But friends, if we deny this about the cross, then we not only deny what God himself says about it, but we undermine our own ability to persevere in the faith when we face trials and tribulations. Because if Jesus did not do anything monumentally sacrificial for us, if he did not suffer horrors that we deserve, then we will not likely suffer anything for him. We will not think that he really did anything significant for me. Our affection for the Savior is proportional to our understanding of what he suffered in our place. So just let me ask this question. Do you think that you have done anything worthy of death? That's a serious question. Do you think you've done anything worthy of death? That you've done anything so bad that you should die because of what you did? If your answer is no, then I think it will be hard for you to experience deep feelings of gratefulness and love for Jesus Christ. And it will be hard for you to remain true to him when you suffer something for his namesake. Love for Christ is what enables us to endure any trial. And perhaps paradoxically, that love is fueled by knowing how evil we are and how merciful he is and not avoiding the hard truths about the gospel. It's how we cultivate our love, our appreciation, our thankfulness to our Savior. The cross is God's declaration to the world that the wages of sin, your sin, my sin, is death. And that it takes the death of his son to pay the penalty for it. Even for our unintentional sins. Sins of ignorance rather than of intention. But the good news is, for those who are trusting in Christ and his shed blood on our behalf, all our sins are forgiven. We are made right with God. We have unlimited, unrestricted access to God. The blood of Jesus Christ really does purify our conscience from dead works, from sin. And so that's what we come back to here in the last part of the chapter. Let's look at why the blood of Jesus brings complete forgiveness. It's in verses 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Here's the explanation for why we can have a clear conscience before God, why we can have an awareness that our many sins don't condemn us if our faith is in Christ. First, Christ entered not holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ has gone to the source of forgiveness, not to a copy of the source that is here on earth. He's taken our case directly to God in heaven, to his eternal and true throne. What transacted between Christ and God the Father is the final word because it is direct intercession. It is no intermediate step. Second, Christ brings complete and permanent forgiveness because he did not have to offer himself repeatedly like the high priest came every year with blood not his own. To the contrary, Jesus appeared once for all, once for all, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's real atonement. Goats and bulls can't do this. Here's the, the real cash payment, as it were, as opposed to the credit card payment that bulls and goats pointed to. It really does retire our sin debt fully and forever because this is the blood of Jesus himself, God and man in one person. This is human blood and a human death in the place of humans. This is a man bearing punishment for the sins of man. This is also God in the flesh, the Son of God who alone has the infinite capacity to bear the weight of sin and its punishment on himself. The once-for-all sacrifice of himself puts away our sin completely. He says it, it secures an eternal redemption. No further sacrifice is needed. On the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. So thoroughly does his own blood deal with every sin of his people, past present, and future. It's one and done. And this is why you can have a purified conscience. This is why you know your sins don't condemn you before God even when you remember them. You have full and forever access to God's favorable presence because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. God is satisfied with what Christ has done. And we must be satisfied with it as well and not continually punish ourselves for sins that God has forgiven. That is a serious temptation for me. Dwelling on, I should have done this, I should have done that. I don't think I'm going to do it well tomorrow either. And there's this constant talk in your head about how you ought to do something about how bad you are. Well, that talk, that condemning talk, shouldn't be there. We can realize and acknowledge that I have done wrong and restitution needs to be made and forgiveness needs to be pursued and all of that, but that is a forgiven sin that I'm aware of. That's what Jesus bore on the cross. That's what purifies my conscience, not my performance yesterday or my hopefully better performance tomorrow. It's what's been done already, the once and for all sacrifice that put away my sin and its guilt. That's what cleanses the conscience. 
One closing thought from verses 27 to 28, which is the security of the fully forgiven person. The person who is trusting in Christ's sacrifice for forgiveness. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having, offered, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There's something sobering and something exciting about that. The sobering part is that we all die once and after that comes judgment. There is no reincarnation. You die once, unless you're Lazarus, who was unlucky enough to have to die twice. <laughs> Though Martha and Mary were glad that he came back because Jesus resurrected him. But most of us die once. That's the standard. But then after that, it says there comes judgment. That means that there is a you that continues after death. A you that is judged. A life that is evaluated by God and a decision rendered. And from other passages, we know what that judgment can mean. It can mean eternal life or it can mean eternal death. Depending on whether your trust was in the blood of Christ or not. That's the sobering reality. But the focus here isn't on our judgment, but on the judgment that Christ bore to secure our forgiveness. And that's the exciting part. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. In other words, Christ died once and He was judged. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. God treated Him as guilty of our sins and He bore the punishment. But He didn't stay dead. He will appear a second time, it says. That's because the infinite God can absorb finite sin without being destroyed. He has the power of an indestructible life, according to chapter 7. Jesus rose from the grave, and that's the truth we're going to celebrate next Sunday. He ascended into heaven, and He will return from heaven. But this time when He comes, it will not be to deal with sin. It won't be to die again. It won't be to go to a cross, because that's finished. It's going to be to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Save salvation in the big sense of that word, which isn't finished until we're with Jesus in paradise, the new creation, the new heaven and earth. That's the goal of salvation. That's when it's complete. So He's coming to save doesn't mean He's coming to forgive our sins, that's happened. All that remains now is entering into the joy, entering into the promised land, entering into, into forever with Him. That's why He's coming back. So the believer does not need to fear the future, fear Jesus coming back to this earth, because He's not going to deal with your sins. He's already done that. He's coming to save you. <laughs> That's why the 
Bible ends with, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Bring it on. End all this. <laughs> and let me come into my full inheritance. Thank you. <laughs> it ends well. We have great promises. But they came through him being offered once to bear the sins of many. And it comes to those who are eagerly waiting for him, which is another way of saying believers. Those who are not eagerly waiting for Jesus, for them, it doesn't end well. And the return of Jesus is a terror. But those who trust in him, who are eagerly waiting and longing, oh, that's a happy day. Oh, happy day. Let me just close with prayer. I'll have the team come up. Let us not shy away from the hard, graphic depictions of what our sin deserves. Lord, help us. Help us to be grateful that you bore it instead of us. This week, we will need your help to not just walk mechanically through the week and go through the motions, but we will need your help to enter into the joy of what forgiveness is like and help us to be convinced of it. We eagerly wait for you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.